Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Right, welcome to another episode of the Science of Sport podcast. And as you saw by the title, it's not a subject that we would normally cover in terms of uh, sport, but it is all about fitness, whether it's physical fitness, emotional fitness, mental fitness, all the elements of fitness. And we're going to be talking to a gentleman who has used fitness in pretty much a life or death situation. His name is Richie Pointer, who was a former Green Beret as part of the Royal Marines, and uh, he has amazing stories to tell around not only the training that the Royal Marines do and what the and the and the sort of uh, physical aspect of what they do as Royal Marines, but also the the physical and emotional and mentals and particularly the mental side. And you'll hear him talking a lot about something called dislocation of expectation, which I absolutely love. And when you understand what that means, there's lots of ways you can actually apply it to sport. But uh, Ross, he, he is. He really is the real McCoy, isn't he? He's not G.I. Jane here. This guy, is uh, you can hear in the way that he talks. He's been there, done that. Yeah, I, I, so I met him in London in May, I think it was. I was there for a little while on a work trip, and I always travel these days with my bicycle. <laughs> and he saw me doing some rides, and he dropped me a message on Strava. He said, hey, I'm a patron, so thanks for that, Richie. Mm-hmm. And uh, he that's how, that's how he got hold of me. He said, listen, I'm, I'm going to be in the area on Friday. Let's go for a ride. So I said, no worries, let's do this. And I showed up that Friday morning and I met him and I took one look at him and I thought oh boy I'm in trouble here because <laughs> he looked the part and then we start cycling so what do you what do you do he says I used to be a Royal Marine I thought oh and I thought maybe I should fake a puncture because I knew I was in for a tough couple hours and it was we did an amazing ride and then we ended up uh, having a first a cup of coffee and then a couple beers and it was there that he actually said to me he thinks it would make an interesting topic to explore how his training and what he knows about what they do in the Royal Marines taught him about performance in sport. And so I said, no, tell me more. And we chatted for a couple of hours and it's too good not to do. Yeah, I mean, he is absolutely, and, and as I said right at the start here, there are so many lessons from what he talks about. And none of us will probably ever go through marine training, but there are principles there that I actually took a lot out of. So we'll get onto that in just a few moments. So before we get into the interview with Richie, and uh, I hope you stay with us for that because it really is brilliant, let's uh, have our usual look back. And uh, we always have a segment in our podcast every week talking about things that caught our eye. And mm. don't forget, you can be uh, part of that discussion on our group on Patreon. So if you are a Patreon, member you can send us a question we've got a couple of questions to deal with this week but uh, Ross what caught our eye this week well we're still using what caught my eye as opposed to patrons so uh, it would help (laughs) both of us if the patrons came to this and said listen here's some ideas because it'll save me having to pay attention (laughs) and it'll give you a chance to have a voice also so so a couple things this week the first was I got a message um, from Torbjorn Jansson from uh, must be Norwegian correct very good Norway and it's actually it's actually a correction because two podcasts back we spoke a little bit about women's sport and I we, we were discussing tennis, you may recall. 
and I got some stats wrong. And Torbjorn very politely corrected <laughs> me. He said, I keep enjoying your podcast, uh, but in your tennis stats about former Grand Slam champs, you said Murray won one. He's actually got three. And you forgot Vavrinka, who also has three. Besides that, all press from Norway. So thanks, thanks, Torbjorn. Consider me dunked on. Well, t- take it on but, the chin. But, but he's right. You know, have you ever... Have you ever begun to tell a joke and then you realize halfway through that you don't know the punchline? <laughs> That's what happened when I was telling you those tennis stats. I remember distinctly going into that discussion and saying, oh, Federer, Nadal and Djokovic have obviously won loads, but there's a couple, and then I didn't know who they were. And I remember trying to be vague, but I wasn't vague enough for our <laughs> listeners. But what I then did was, just inspired by Torbjorn's correction, is I went actually and had a look at this. So Roger Federer's first Grand Slam title was in 2003 at Wimbledon. Wow. Since then, there have been 75 Grand Slam tournaments, men and women each. And on the men's side, there have been 12 unique champions. Wow. On the women's side, there have been 29 unique champions. On the men's side, obviously, you've got the big three. You've won, two of them have won 20, and then Nadal now in 22. So that alone accounts for 62 out of the 75 Grand Slams have gone to those three players. Then, obviously, you get Murray and Vavrinka with three each. Yep. On the women's side, Serena Williams has 18. The next best is six, Justine Hannon. Wow. Then five. Then we have a couple with two, a handful with three, and so on. And 13 different women have won one Grand Slam. So more women have won only one title than men in total have won Grand Slam since Roger Federer won his first one. Yeah, it, it's so, definitely a, we can look at a, getting a tennis specialist in yeah, here because it's a fascinating yeah. discussion. So, so the thing that's missing, obviously, is to go back pre-Roger Federer and ask whether men's tennis looked like women's does now with like just major chaos. That's how I would describe this. It's yes. high flux. And, and I mean, high honestly, I could, I could give you the names of some of these one-time women champions. And I reckon if you weren't quite a close follower of tennis, you wouldn't recognize half of them. Yep. And that's how, that's how much flux and unpredictability there is in, in women's tennis. And I suppose the debate is, is that healthy or no? Because in one respect, it's good. Unpredictability is valuable. But in other respects, it means you don't get the entrenchment of personalities and brands and so on to, to write stories off of. So it's an interesting difference between the men's and the women's game. And anyway, that was inspired by Torbjorn's correction. Yeah, and I, I, t- I absolutely think that's a very critical point you made there because I think in sport, and I'm on the side of the discussion around publicity around sport, that if you have a few players that dominate, it actually is better for the sport because people have heroes to identify with. And people, the media, you look at a guy like Nadal, there's been thousands of stories written by him. People get to know him, mm. his training regimes, he becomes a hero within the sport. Whereas if you have this churn and flux, you don't necessarily have any point of looking at somebody and saying, well, you know, I'm, you know, Serena Williams is an example, but the other 16 players you're talking about, as you say, are probably mm. only no, a handful of them. And it hasn't always been that way. You yeah. go back to the 80s, you had Everett and, and Everett and Ratilova. Yep. Then you had a period with Graf and uh, Sabatini and Monica Sellers. Yep. Capriati, Hingis were personalities. Uh, then the Belgians, Clusters and Hennen. And then obviously the Williams sisters. So it does happen. It's just unusual at the moment that it hasn't happened for so long. And that's why the media overreacts to the emergence of a Naomi Osaka, who's got four, by the way, quite high on that list, yeah. relatively. Relatively young, too. And then you get Emma Raducanu, who wins the US Open last year, is the next big thing, hasn't made a major final since mm. in doubt for Wimbledon. So, yeah, it, well, it's an interesting space. And I suppose the challenge is how do you make the, the, the name without giving them a platform, but no one's given them a platform because they're not names. Yeah. I think I think the current number one, this Iga Swantek, is a potential to become a multiple, I mean, she's already got a couple, but 
she may well go into double figures unless someone figures out how to play against her. Mm. Anyway, that's mm. yeah, yeah. So that I thought that was interesting. Mm. I find it similar to golf in some respects. When Tiger Woods was dominating, you kind of knew the top five, and they were always the pretenders to Tiger mm. Woods. And since his decline, there's been a lot of golf players at the top, but nobody that really stands out. It's so, SA marathon yeah. running. That's right? one of the big challenges. Oh, yeah. is big writing challenges. about you know Gabriel Selassie maybe was different. Kipchoge certainly is. Yeah. You know, there've been stories about him and how he lives and so on. Mm. But for the most part, this the, 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 their careers are so short. Mm. They're very difficult to build story arcs around. And you think how great Kipchoge has been over the last 10 years. And yes, he is a big personality, but it's taken him almost those 10 years of absolutely outstanding performances to get that notoriety. Mm, Exactly. Then second one, Trip Hawthorne, patron member. Thanks, Trip, for that. Sent a message saying, good morning. I'm an age group triathlete here in Louisiana on the U.S. Gulf Coast. Our challenge here is not so much heat as it is humidity. My impression is that one can train to adapt to heat and that mechanism of that adaptation is to sweat more, but there doesn't seem to be any way to adapt to high humidity. Is that correct? Am I better off training indoors and saving myself for the suffering that comes with running outside in 85 degrees and 90% humidity? Or is there some value in that? So it's a good question. Thanks for yeah. that. So a couple of things Trip has asked and said. First one is the mechanism of adaptation is to sweat more. That's absolutely the case. Studies that have been done on heat acclimation show that the first thing that changes is we sweat more and our plasma volume goes up in order to allow that. So we literally produce more plasma and our ability to recruit sweat glands improves. So that helps keep us cool. It's probably the main thing driving heat adaptation. Where it gets interesting, and this is also true, is the humidity is a major factor. We, we discussed in our most recent pod that some data shows that temperature is maybe the main contributor to optimal weather or suboptimal, followed by humidity. Mm-hmm. And the combination of those two ultimately determines your capacity for exercise. Recall that heat storage, which can be either positive, i.e. I'm getting hotter, or heat loss, which can be negative then, I'm getting colder, is a function of the difference between what heat I produce and what I lose. Make sense? Yeah. Heat production is exercise, heat loss is environment. Yeah. Heat loss comes from convection, which is wind or water, and heat, and it comes from evaporation of sweat. Sweat that drips off us does not remove heat, only when it evaporates. Mm. And the problem with high humidity is that it doesn't allow sweat to evaporate. And that's why when you get an optimal combination, or well, it's not optimal, it's exactly the opposite, of high temperatures plus high humidity, we can no longer lose heat through air cooling because the air is warmer than our body. So in fact, we gain heat from the air. And we can't evaporate the sweat. So therefore, we've got no heat loss avenues left. And that's the biggest problem. That's what's called an uncompensable environment, heat environment. And I remember when I started my studies, I read a paper that was written around the time of the Atlanta Olympics and it was called A Fight Against Physics by a Danish researcher, Bodil Nielsen. And they were basically saying that given the average conditions in Atlanta, this marathon will be lethal because they knew that it would be 30 degrees and... 80% 80% humidity. In the end, it wasn't. In fact, our guy won it. In a, mm. Well, it wasn't fast, but it was a relatively quick Just time. Just like yeah. Exactly. Mm. Now, the, the question that Trip asks off the back of this is, should I train indoors and save myself, or is there any benefit? In, adapt- in you, adaptation. In adaptation yeah. to heat. Yeah. If you are going to race in the heat, you must adapt to it. Mm. You, can't, you can't get in and out, like sneak in and out before the heat hits you mm-hmm. in a race. Some people have thought that. You know, you can... Train in the cool, get myself ready, and then go 90 minutes in the heat and out again. No, it doesn't work. <laughs> the heat will hurt. 
Yeah. So you have to adapt to the heat. That's why even tennis players, you know, they're going to be playing in Australia. They go do hot training sessions. You yeah. must adapt to what you're going to prepare for. Where it gets really interesting is whether you can train in the heat in order to adapt for benefits in the cold. You know, like at altitude, you'll go up and you'll train at altitude to improve sea level performance. Yes. There is now a theory, and some studies are coming out to support it, that if you train in heat, you'll get benefits in cold weather. So you train at one extreme in order to see benefits at the baseline. Make sense? <laughs> not, not really, to be honest with you, because should the adaptations for cold uh, conditions are different. Well, not cold, normal. So not cold as in like minus five. Yes. 15 degrees, perfect marathon running weather, right. 9, 10 degrees. So, the, so, so the, the thing is... So they're not extremes you're talking about. Not yeah. extremes. Right. What we're saying is can we train in hot, challenging environments in order to get better for the marathon in optimal environments? I see what you mean here. Yes. Make okay. sense now? Right, got it. And the answer yeah. is maybe. And so there's one study, and this is why this particular question of trip caught my eye, other than the fact that it was in my inbox. Uh, and this is a study published in 2021 by Ed Maunder out of New Zealand. And what they basically did was they took 17 endurance athletes and they gave them a three-week training block either at 33 degrees, which is hot, or at 18 degrees, which is mild. And then they tested their performance either side of that training block. And sure enough, the group that trained in the heat got better at cool temperatures than the group that trained in the mild temperature. So, Maybe because they were effectively just training harder. They controlled. So that, that's a very good observation. They control for that. So when you read the paper, training was matched for relative cardiovascular demand using heart rates measured during the test that they did before. So the cardiovascular stress was the same, yet they still got a better performance difference. Okay. So they say, well, why might that be? And they measured, for instance, enzyme activity that is a marker for how many mitochondria they have. Remember, the mitochondria are basically responsible for converting fuel into ATP. Yeah. And so they find that citrate synthase activity, which is directly proportional to mitochondria, goes up in the heat-trained group, but not in the cool-trained group. Right. So if you train in the heat, you might get metabolic adaptations that make you better at delivering fuel to your muscles, and you also start increasing your fat-burning capacity, and therefore you might get better in cool conditions. That's brilliant. It's really interesting. That's very interesting. So this is a, yeah, this is a new-ish field. So hot, warm weather training is better for you if everything is the same, warm weather training is better for you because could, of could be. Like I'm, could I'm be. always cautious to be. Yes. There are studies to support that. Correct. <laughs> and so in answer to Tripp's question, that if you're training for something hot, then you have to do that. If you're training for something cool, you might want to do that in right. training in the first place. But now you've got to be careful because there's trade-off here. Just like at altitude, if you go out and it's 85 degrees and 90% humidity, I guarantee you you're not having a good training session. Yeah. You're getting a benefit of the cardiovascular and maybe the metabolic advantage, but you're not going to run fast and you're not going to run well or cycle, whatever it is, right? Right. So you have to pick very carefully when you load yourself that way compared to saying, today I want performance. Today I need optimal conditions for peak performance in training, whereas on this day I need heat for optimal adaptation. Mm. Same as at altitude. You can go to altitude and you'll get the benefit of thinner air, thinner ox less oxygen, but you won't be able to train as well. So what you gain in one area, you might lose in another. Correct. Same thing for the mm. heat. So, so Trip, the answer is you have to be very cautious and judicious about how you load the heat into your training. Because if you do it too often, you'll finish yourself off. You'll yeah. be exhausted, overtrained, burned out, tired, and then nothing will help. <laughs> yeah. So you've got to be if you if you choose right, you can actually get a benefit from those conditions 
that will help you in your performance. So Fascinating. That's, that's yeah. interesting. So if you have a choice between going to the Ural Mountains in the middle of winter or training in the mild spring of England or something like that, then obviously the mild where spring in England would be a lot better off than training in the cold. There's no, In other words, if you go and train and you want to train and benefit, you're not going to go to a cold environment because actually a warm environment but supposedly gives you better results. Could do, yeah. Yeah, yeah and that's so. the thing. So it's really very yeah. interesting. It is, indeed. We, you see, and it's, it's because the, con- the, the general concept of stress on physiology applies. Mm. Heat just creates a different kind of stress mm. on the physiology. Mm. And as a result, we get better. And the mm. body doesn't care about when we get better. We just get better. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, you know, England's having their summer now, all the Northern Hemisphere people. So enjoy the warm weather because you are getting a lot of benefit. Anyway, so let's move on to our interview. It is uh, Richie Pointer, our Marine, who's going to give us some insight into being a Marine and how it applies to sports. Well, Richard, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. Um, we know that you and Ross had a bit of a ride around the London or the English countryside a, a month or so ago. And when Ross came back and said that I met this quite hardcore cyclist who made me bleed on the hills, I realized that we were speaking to must be somebody close to an elite type rider <laughs> if you were putting Ross in the in the pain cave. Uh, yeah, that's pretty flattering to me to honest you to say i was elite level but um, very flattering yeah, we, to me. <laughs> uh, but yeah that's correct yeah myself and ross went for a very it was it was it was a good ride in some nice weather around the surrey hills and uh we had a good um a good recuperation session afterwards i think it's pretty fair to say with uh we started off on a cup of tea and transferred to um some lager shandies pretty soon after uh, <laughs> just probably also not, not not the um elite athlete behavior behavior, behavior either sorry <laughs> Well, Richard, it really is fascinating to talk to you. And as we've said in the intro, um, you know, this is not a traditional science of sport podcast, but there are so many um, things that we're looking forward to chatting to you about with your experience as a Royal Marine and and, and the physical side of things, but also the mental and I guess the emotional side of the training that you went through and how that applies to not only your own cycling, but a lot of uh, events and endurance events, particularly that we talk about on this podcast. So it's exciting. So just give us a bit of a brief idea about um how long you were at the royal marines and and uh, what was the motivation for joining the royal marines that's always an interesting question yeah okay so uh, I, I joined the royal marines or i joined re- recruit training um in the royal marines in 2010 uh and i was in the royal marines for five years um it was a reasonably busy uh and kinetic uh period of time for the uk and the royal marines especially around then um and that included some tour, uh, tours of Afghanistan, some trips around the Middle East and uh, Mediterranean, and then some sort of training exercises and stuff in the, in, uh, the Mojave Desert, the US Marines as well. Um, I guess motivation-wise, you know, what got me through the front door, which is the first barrier to entry, the front door of the Armed Forces Careers Office. Um, I think I had a sort of a moment of clarity, I think, where I think I all along from being quite young, I knew I wanted to join the military. Um, I didn't have any family background in the military, which a lot of, a lot of people do. Um, and they sort of follow in their father's footsteps, for, for instance. Uh, I, I didn't have that, but I, I think I've always been keen uh, and interested in the military. And I just found that I woke up and I thought, I will regret not doing this if I don't give it a go. You know, I, I really wanted to test my mettle and see if I had what it took. Um, and that really was the motivator to get me through that 
across the threshold and put, 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 my, put, my, put my name on the dotted line. Um, yeah. Yeah. I always find it interesting because here in South Africa, we, you know, 20 odd years ago, maybe even more close to 30 years ago, we had conscription here where people were forced to go to the army and a lot of people didn't want to go, but a lot of people did go. Is there, at a very basic level, when you're going into the army at the level that you were in a time when there was a lot of conflict involving the armed forces in the UK, is it not a simple, basic fear of getting shot <laughs> without. I mean, I often wonder about that. Is there, yeah. is there that fear? I guess there is. And I think, I think you know, you have to go in with your eyes open. And, and, and the reality is, you know, people have and do, do, do lose their lives uh, in all armed forces and, 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 and in the Royal Marines. And it happened when I was, when, when I was a Royal Marine, you know, to, to, to colleagues. But, yeah, I, th I think, you know, I think it's like a lot of things when we look at sort of risk, we, we anticipate risk and look at risk. I think if I'm honest, you just think it probably won't happen to me and you rationalize it that way, which is probably not the most um, logical uh, thought process. But I think that is obviously a clear risk, but the risk is the reward is worth that risk. Yeah. yeah. Did you, so then when guys get that call or the instruction to say, all right, you're up, you're active duty, here you go, you're off to Afghanistan in two weeks or two days. I yeah. don't know how it works exactly. Do you say, yes, this is what I was here for? Or do you go, oh man, I might have um, done without this and just done the training? My personal response, my personal experience, sorry, of that would uh, fall across age lines. I was a little bit older when I joined and when I took, the, the, the build-up when I when I went to Afghanistan was very long. It's it's almost a year uh, of of, of pre-deployment training that gradually builds up to more and more specific sort of tactics and drills and etc. That, that are relevant and pertinent to the operational environment. Um, we were told we were doing ground holding uh, in Helmand, and that's to be honest, you about as fruity as it gets in in Afghanistan when 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 we were out there. Um, a lot of people were very happy with that because we get to do the job that we train for. And I'm not saying I wasn't, but I would be lying if I said there wasn't some uh, element of me who that, that had some, some severe, not reservations, but I, I was worried and I knew that possibly we wouldn't be coming back on the plane with everybody who left. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. So let's get on to some of the specifics about what we want to talk about today. And, and I think this is where it becomes very interesting because you, you sent us this amazing document which kind of outlines some of the training and some of the challenges that you, you faced um, as part of the Royal Marines and particularly around the training. And the story that Ross related to me is, and you can maybe add some color to this, is that even before the guys get off the train at the training center, some of the guys literally by looking at the training center, they don't even get off the train because they're intimidated <laughs> so much. So understanding yeah. the why of why you need to be there is important. So just add add to that because I'm, I'm fascinated to know, as we've just discovered from you, knowing the why seems quite important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'll, I'll try and sort of set the scene as it were, or, or as you say, set, 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 put some color to that. Um, so Limston Commando is the commando training center Royal Marines and that that's down in Devon. Um, and it's serviced effectively by its own railway platform, which until quite recently, I believe you couldn't alight at unless you had official business at Limston. So if you're on that small rickety train from Exeter and David's, there'll be 60 young men on there with black bags, uh, looking quite scared, all heading in one direction. Um, and as you roll into the station, uh, the view you're greeted with is the River X to your right and the mud flats. And to your left is the 
bottom field or assault course, as most people would know that. And it is becomes a daunting and uh, harrowing sort of view that sort of greets you every time you arrive back at that, at that destination. Um, recruit training usually starts with around 60 people. And as, as exactly as uh, Ross um, portrayed to you, one guy didn't get off the train and went all the way to Exmoor and then got the train back to Exeter and we never saw him again, which um, I sympathise with, if I'm honest with you. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it yeah. seems very early on in the process that that happens. And you say it's just the, I guess, that person sitting on the train, not 100% knowing his why, and just though that, that was just enough to tip him over the edge for, of not yeah, getting I, off the train. Yeah, sorry, Mike. I, I think, yeah, I, I, you're, you're absolutely right. Knowing the why or making sure that your motivation is true as, as to why you're going to embark on this, which you, you don't know exactly what's going to happen to you, but you know, it's going to, you know, it's, it's going to be a difficult and, and difficult process um, and quite an extended one. Um, making sure the motivations are true, I think is so, so important because it just builds a foundation that everything else rests on. And without it, it all just crumbles like a pack of cards really. Um, Cause as soon as pressure gets applied to you, be that like you uh, mentioned earlier, emotional, physical stress um you then question and it becomes too easy to put your hand up and say i don't want to do this yeah yeah can i ask you what what commitment has been made by the time you get onto that train have you have you committed to going there with the intention of doing the 32 weeks fully have you already been screened have have you already been approved to actually go on that level of training in other words are you going in feet first eyes closed jumping off a cliff or have you sort of edged your way to that point by then um no it's it, it's definitely a gradual process there's so there's the initial obviously you you sign up to actually start the process in terms of of, of enrolling but there's um at my time of joining there were two sort of criteria um physical tests that you had to pass and you were still a civilian at the time um so there was the pre-joining fitness test which is a pretty basic treadmill test carried out um sort of a, a corporate gym um and it, it takes place around the country um the specs to pass that are not particularly arduous if i'm honest with you but it's the first sort of level of filtration effectively to check that you kind of uh are training correctly and have the necessary sort of baseline level of fitness to sort of start training the second the second one is is, is more arduous and when i when i was sort of going through the process was known as the uh pre-Royal Marines commando course, so PRMC. Um, and that actually takes place in Limpstone uh, in Devon at the actual training training camp. And it's, and it's a three-day exercise or um, you attend that as a civilian again. So at any point you can leave, there's, there's, there's no sort of, you know, you're, you're, you aren't committed to it. Um, and it involves some criteria tests. So bleep tests, push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, um, you know, where you're you're actually me actually measured on metrics and you have to pass a certain and, and, and achieve a certain score, um, and there's also what's known as the, the determination test, which happens on the bottom field or the assault courses I mentioned earlier, and that really just consists of being thrashed by a Royal Marines PTI for a couple of hours just to see if you can get anyone to quit and go home. I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, one of the interesting things about that is that you obviously went into this having some sort of level of confidence in your ability mm. because I can't imagine that if you were somebody who struggled with cross-country at school or anything like that, uh, you would want to get involved in something like that. So maybe give us a background as to where you got that confidence to know that you could achieve the physical goals. Yeah, so I've been involved in sport all my life since I was very young. Um, I used to race cross-country mountain bikes from about the age of 11. Uh, so 
I had like pretty decent like background in just being sporting, I guess. So a, a decent base level of fitness. Also, you are aware as, as, as you embark on the process of like the, the, the criteria scores that they're looking for. So how many press ups you have to do in two minutes, for instance. And so you, that's, that's a clearly definable thing that you can measure and you can do that in your own front room. And if you can only do two, then there's not a lot of point you going to Limston to see if you can join the Royal Marines, but it's something you can work at. And it's just a, obviously a, a learning curve or a, you know, you, you, you slowly build yourself up towards those, those, those goals. And then once I think, once you start getting close to being able to achieve the maximum scores on those tests, you, it just builds a bit of confidence in yourself that, that, that you could, you, you can go and attend and give, 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 give a good, uh, example of yourself really yeah yeah so those early tests that you did was there a sense that they you were you were easily achieving them therefore you had the confidence that you knew you could take that into the what was going to be a very difficult training sets um so i for, for me personally achieving definitely the, the upper body test so the push-ups and the pull-ups wasn't easy but once you got there and you could achieve those at home once then you had the extra sort of motivation and, and adrenaline of actually carrying out the tests, you know, at CTC Lemston, you were, yeah, you were fairly confident you could, you, you, you could achieve that. And you knew that if you, you know, just gave that, gave a hundred percent on that determination test and just really went for it, that chances are you would, you would then receive a recruit training date to start training after that. Yeah. 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 So one of the subjects that you mentioned in the, in the, in the document you sent to us is that the difference between, and we thought it was a difference between sport and what the Royal Marines go to in, through in terms of their training is that controlling the controllables is you can, there are certain controllables you can control, certain ones that you can't, and the, how you handle those two aspects of it. Talk about controlling the controllables because that's probably the least interesting. The, the second half is probably the more interesting. So, yeah. So, depending on what, what, what you're looking to do, be that uh, run a 5K thumb run, be that um run a marathon or uh yeah it doesn't really matter what the event is behind that and before you you arrive at the event there there, there are numerous numerous three things you can do that are within your control literally you know and that, obviously that sounds quite obvious but so there's you know how am i going to get to the race or, or or the event the training that you do to arrive and it leans back to your point really mike about um did i have the confidence to go to recruit training the controllers I can control in that situation are I can make sure I can do 60 press-ups in two minutes. Um, that's within my gift if I have the time to do it. And so I know when I arrive that I've done everything I can to meet that criteria test, just, just, just to sort of define that as an, or give, give an example of that. Um, so I th I, And for me, what I learned was that if I can manage to control those bits, the things that are, in, that are within my sort of gift effectively to control, it manages to reduce the noise and the stress around either events or things you're going to attend, which are always in the background and just add to that sort of already sort of overall state that you get when you're about to compete in whatever event it is that you've decided is your goal. Yeah. And how do they teach you that in the, in the, in the Royal Marine training? Because I think it's fair to say, maybe not, but you'll correct me. I'm sure that when you are being prepared for the situations that you are, most things are going to be out of your control and you have to actually learn to let go of those things. So how, how do you identify them and then how do you cope with knowing that they're there and you've got no influence over them? Yeah. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's a great point, Ross. Um, I think as to 
put it into a military context, exactly as you say, Ross, the, the amount of controllables in, in your GIF reduce and reduce, sometimes only to um, literally your own personal administration. So the fact that your bag is always packed correctly, you know where the things are in your rucksack, your weapons works, it's well-oiled, it's serviceable. Sometimes the controllables sort of begin and end there. there there's, there's nothing else you know. But at, at that point, I think... If you know that you're good to go, then that's the first step, and that's that's that is is a huge help and a massive sort of de-stressor, effectively, in in that environment. If you know that you and your section that are around you who are already been through the training and also doing the same things as you're doing, so preparing, making sure their kit's in good order, I think that gives you a good sort of foundation to build on. Then you can face the uncontrollables, which are numerous, as you say. You describe it in your document as the dislocation of expectation. And uh, uh, give us an example of how they train you in that, because that is really the difference between, as you say, racing a cycle race on the weekend where there are lots of controllables in the army. It's life or death and anything can happen. So even before you go there, because, you know, the the controller controllables is one principle that applies very easily across marines versus sport this is one that you introduced me to these words dislocation of expectation that Mm -hmm. really piqued my interest because my whole phd was an exactly the opposite thing so maybe explain what it is and then how Mm -hmm. it gets taught yeah so how i would define that really is um it's (laughs) when when what it doesn't really matter what the event is it could be going to the shops to get a pint of milk it could be running a marathon. It could be, or it could be a military operation. What happens is, and and what they try to do in training, or what what they achieve in training, sorry, um, is you have an idea of the predefined endpoint of that exercise, of that run, of that event, and the training team will um, change that basically, um, and, and and in doing so, it tests people's resolve and also builds people's resolve. So, for an example. Um, we will undertake what what we think is a, a it's called a yomp in the Royal Marines, but basically means walking with your rucksack and kit and equipment. It's just a, a slang word in the Royal Marines. Um, and say you think you're walking from point A to point B, and at which point you'll be either picked up by a helicopter, some sort of motorized transport, anything that isn't you walking, basically. At that point, you arrive and they will break the bad news to you that uh, that transport isn't available anymore and we're continuing the rest of it on foot. Um, which doesn't sound that bad on on sort of a, a Skype call, but <laughs> when it happens to you when you when when you've when you've been outside in, on Dartmoor for a week, it can be pretty heartbreaking and really break your morale. Um, that would be the dislocation expectation. Um, yeah, that's that's how I, I, I would describe it. Yeah, it's it's just that 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 moving of the goalposts really without your knowledge. Yeah, give us an example of of one particular occasion that that happened in. Yeah, yeah. So I mean. Like I said about the Dharma one, I think it was on, on on one of our final exercises in training. Um, so for that, we'd been out for probably about a week on Dartmoor, I think, um, and the weather had been pretty horrendous. It was towards it was in the UK winter, um, and Dartmoor was pretty inhos- in, in, inhospitable then. It seems to have a, a permanent rain cloud sort of tethered to it um, as 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 a national park. Um, we were then doing what we thought was what's known as an extraction yomp. So you're basically walking out of the, out of the operation. So you're, you're, you're walking out to get transport away from where, where, where you've been conducting your patrols, your exercise, et cetera. Um, and we were meant to be 
being picked up by a Chinook on top of Gutter Tour, which is a, a, a small, small hill, small mountain on, 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 on Dartmoor. Uh, we arrived on time and uh, we, we were ready for the, for the transport. We had our sort of infrared um, glow sticks out for the helicopter to come down. Everyone's like, oh, this is, here we go. This is it. You know, everyone's just looking forward to getting on that and probably falling asleep, even though, um, at which point the training team then informed us, sorry, lads. No, 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 no helicopters today. There's, they aren't flying. At which point we had to then bivy up overnight, um, so sleep overnight in our, in our, um, and then complete their extraction yomp the, the following day. Yeah, which was, was another. I don't know exactly how far it was, but it was a decent, decent. So just to give that context, so you'd been on Dartmoor for a, for how many days before that extraction? Um, it was a, probably a good seven days. I would have said, yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, and that's that's without hard cover. Generally, so we would call it. So, no, no, you haven't got a roof over your head at, at any point in that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do, and do you? I mean, when that happens, do you do you realise that they're trying to train you in a certain method of thought, or do you genuinely think that the helicopters aren't coming because the weather's bad? And obviously, they're doing it deliberately. And maybe the second after that question is, what do you learn when that happens? So, I think you're. The, the thought process changes as you go through training and that's it, it literally is one of the, the it's one of the definitions or one, one one of the outcomes you want from the training so at the start of training the dislocations they give you are quite small you know it isn't like that because most people just be like no chance i'm out of here and just the hand will go up straight on the bus <laughs> that's me you know that's and that, that's you know you, you have to apply the load or both mentally and physically gradually to, to recruits um so at the start of training, the dislocations are much smaller. And so you start to learn that really it's a bit of a game, if I'm honest with you, but also you start to develop this just mentality of maybe just accepting that, like, like, like you stated, not everything is in, within your control. And you've already almost pre-thought that when I arrive there, if that helicopter's not there, that's fine because we've controlled the controllables. So my kit's in my bag, I've got a sleeping bag. Everything else that I can do, I've done. And... If the helicopter's not there, then we're still in good order. You know, we can do this basically. Yeah, and 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 as those dislocations become more drastic as training goes goes on, that just hardens you to that, and 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 you just yeah, it it, it really hardens your resolve around that, and and you're much more prepared for it when it comes. And and yeah, yeah. So by that stage, of course, you're dealing with the elite of the elite, and they've already shown that resilience and that grit, the ability to dislocate. So I would imagine nobody falters at that point but i mean my 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 lens is as on athletes and if you if you entered a marathon with an expectation that was 42.2 k's and you got to the anticipated (laughs) finish line and they said you still got another three or four blocks to go plus a hill and uh, we'll see you in like 25 minutes more most humans would say screw it i'm going home and stop eh yeah, exactly, and I think you'd have probably less people um, sign up for the race next year. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, and and I realise this is broad, but would would you say that that sort of psychological stress and uh, discomfort filters out more people than the physical in the marine context? I would say so. Yes, I, th- I think so. I think if you arrive reasonably robust and fit, then. Most, not most people, but I think people can pass that, that training. The, the training is progressive physically. Um, people do get injured and there are things outside of their control that, you know, if you get injured, that's just, can just be unlucky. Um, but I would say, yeah, men- mentally, it's, it's, that's, that's the thing that people break on generally. Yeah. Yeah. So 
when you when you now do a sports event with with a known endpoint, do you find yourself consciously ignoring it? <laughs> Have you become um, cynical and mistrusting of other? <laughs> no, no, no I, I, I don't go out on a ride and then think someone's moved the cafe. You know, sort of. Thing. I don't. I don't. So yeah, <laughs> um, I don't think that it's. It, it, it's more if something happens in the ride that you weren't planning on, that's probably where it's applicable to maybe to sort of sport where there is a defined start and end point. Even if that's just a solo ride on your own, you know how long it is. But obviously what happens in that ride isn't always known. You, you can plan the route, you can know where you're going to stop, etc. But, you know, I'll carry the relevant spares as I'm sure you would, Ross and Mike, when you cycle. And that, that, exactly that, that's controlling the controllables. But there may be something that happens that is, with, is without... Sorry, is outside of your control, and I guess it's how you face those 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 parts that are probably um, that you develop. I think to hark back to a podcast, the previous episode of yours, Mike, you interviewed Lachlan Morton. I think he just broken his chain on like the Cape Epic or something like that, uh, you know, or, or done that long Tour de France ride, like his knee sort of went. That that there just gives you, you know, you couldn't probably meet someone who's less sort of you would you would meet you'd think would be less in the military, but he's obviously got that mindset. Yeah, it's just absolutely crystal clear that he's developed that sort of just attitude where he can just deal with these things he can roll with them and and overcome them and it's yeah that's so it's not just a military you know it's not something that you can only learn in the military for sure it's it's, it's absolutely not yeah and that's what i was uh, that's it's really handy you took it in that direction because i was thinking of this as my next question is did you encounter personality types that just did this better than others because i know athletes who'll be listening to this and maybe i'm one of them who really want to understand and know everything that waits for them. They want to try and micromanage and be mm-hmm. fully aware of what's around the next corner, the one after that, the one after that. But then you get other people maybe listening to this and going, you know what, that's definitely not me. I don't want to see the route. I don't want to know what's coming. I just want to be in the moment while I'm there and do it that way. And so I wondered whether there were personality types that you met and, and, and also which you were. Did you find it easy to, to learn this skill? When we all do things, we all have preconceived or, or, or we, we we make judgments on people and their personalities and their abilities and often that happens like you know with through all walks of life and it definitely happens in Romans training and you think oh this person's really good at map reading this person's really good at whatever sometimes the people who you maybe for want of a better word don't you know necessarily think is the best soldier it's right at those darkest moments where everybody's morale is broken that often they come and they're just that diamond that's just formed through that pressure and they just have like a like a sense of humor that just is like unbreakable and that just brings the entire troop up uh, it's, it's quite strange how everybody plays off each other and often when everything's going great every, 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 everybody can just do their job but then sometimes when it's really dark and you know things are really on you know re- really really difficult it just it's those people that maybe you hadn't realized their qualities at the time that that, that really shine at that point and i think that's something that i definitely learned so i will say it's uh any coaches listening to this like introducing chaos and disruption and dislocation the way you talk about it is actually a really important part in team sports you can see obvious reasons is because it's one team against another and the other team will do things that you couldn't possibly have anticipated and then you have to fall back on your own controllable and preparation so i know a lot of coaches will try and shake things up by leaving the team stranded i know eddie jones of england used to sometimes tell the players to be a training and they'd be waiting for a bus that he never booked. And so then they'd have to figure out how to get there themselves. And he was doing it for, I think, similar reasons. But even endurance sports, you know, I hope the lesson coaches take from this is to try and introduce stress that will make the athlete agile in response to um, 
I'm not going to use the word catastrophe because I know it has <laughs> implications, but chaos and, and unforeseen things. Yeah, I, I think it, it's quite difficult as a sort of a solo individual or a solo athlete training yourself to do so because I think the, the the beauty of those bits where the training team move move move, move the end the the um the finish line are obviously blind or so as in we aren't party to that information but obviously as a solo athlete obviously you know exactly how long your ride's going to be and as, as you say Ross you like to plan everything so it's meticulous so it's quite hard to like organically inject those kind of sort of um that that jeopardy for want of a better term into mm. your sort of um events but what i think probably is quite good in that is maybe thinking about training slightly outside of the box so instead of just okay i want to do a sport or even i want to do a marathon instead of just running 26 miles maybe like think about doing sort of trail running and obviously we don't want to put <laughs> you know not exposing you know saying people should risk put, put themselves at risk but you know do a bike packing trick even though the race you're doing isn't bike packing because that just involves you know some other elements that aren't, aren't in your control and i think that that is really valuable i think personally I mean, I always think there's some fascinating examples. I mean, I imagine you, if you have a puncture, you're probably the calmest person in the world when you get a puncture. But there are great examples of events like the Bartley Marathons where the chances of finishing are very slim. Therefore, it's just about living in that moment. And there are so many uncontrollables in that environment that you can get through them. And I, and I think about these long-distance cycling events like Transcontinental and Nerd Carp and those sort of events where – there are lots of things that you're completely out of control of, mostly the weather, um, that you just have to fight your way through. So I, I imagine that resilience that you've built up would probably uh, be quite attractive to you as a cyclist to be able to take on those type of events because it, it does suit that mentality. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two, two elements to that. One, one is building up that, that resilience, and exactly as you say there, but also then there's also, I guess, learning which kit and equipment to take with you as well, which is also slightly more of a, an, a like an individual skill, but just knowing, and that, that that's born through experience, obviously. And again, you don't have to just learn that in the military. Anyone who takes part in an outdoor activity, they probably only have to sort of descend off a mountain once without a rain jacket. Yeah. And they probably wouldn't do it again. It's pretty, it's pretty, it's, 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 it's a pretty quick feedback loop on that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So just moving on, one of the interesting things that you come up in the document is that when it comes to the, being in the Royal Marines, there's a lot of stuff where you've you talked about being in a team and you talked about how the team dynamic often helps you get through the tough challenges. But essentially, the, the character of the person that's there is, is, so, is a very individual thing because if you don't have a strong character, you're not going to get through it. You have to be able to take responsibility for your own environment um, almost all the time beyond just the team dynamic. I, I, I think there's there's that element, as you said in the document, when character is defined as no, when, no, when you're doing something when no one is watching, uh, which I think is a lovely way of describing it because it's it's that self-motivation that seems to be a strong part of that component of that. Yeah, so the, the Royal Marines have a very strong ethos of unselfishness, um, and so it's sort of drilled into you right from the right from the get-go that you are there and you need to be looking after your what are known as oppos so just your colleagues effectively and that's that's just that is just hammered home from day one right to the end and all the way through your roaring career and so you really just go out looking when, when, when you go on exercise operations whatever it is you are always looking around and checking everybody else is okay including yourself obviously you have to look after yourself but it, it's, it's such a strong ethos of the Royal Marines that, you know, we don't leave people behind and, and you know, you have to be there for your your colleagues 
Yeah. yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the basic principles of, of, the, of the training and the, and the ethos of what we're talking about here. So when you, when you talk about basic principles, what, what do you mean basic principles in Royal Marine training? So do you mean sort of technically, as in just looking after yourself and just being able to be self-sufficient? Is that? Yeah, and also, what 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 do you need to? In other words, the principles of it are that you need to have the mentality where you can, you know, deal with the the dislocation of expectation. But are there are there also principles in terms of your ability to face danger, for instance, because that is a component that maybe you can't necessarily train for. If somebody's shooting at you from the other side of a of a field, how do you train for something like that, for instance? And so, and also to add to that, uh, Richie, um, you're gonna get. I think you said earlier. I think you were older when you joined, which is how old? Uh, I was twenty four. Twenty four. So that doesn't sound that old, but it's but it's a bit older than most. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned to me there's some sixteen year olds who might be there, oh, and you've yeah. got people coming from so many different backgrounds, cultures, and and so on. It's really interesting always to me how the Royal Marine will take such a disparate group of people and shape them to ultimately come out with a similar skill set, similar mindset, similar, I'm not going to say personality, but similar approach to problem solving and so on. That, that I, I'm interested in understanding how they actually go about shaping you that way. Yeah. Yeah. So like, exactly as you say, Ross, the, the, the age ranges are roughly, roughly at recruit trading between sort of 16 to 30 years old i mean and there's less 16 year olds than 30 year olds most people are probably around 19 i'm guessing um but as, as you said they come from all walks of life um and i think what happens is uh, with the training is that it all starts at basically first principles and very very basic so once, once you start recruit training you go into a thing called foundation where you all live in one big massive dorm or room um and you are taught I mean, the basics, and I mean the basics. And I think we talked about this, Ross, where mm. you're taught how to shower, which I know people are going to be like, did I just hear that guy right? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you're taught how to, you know, iron your kit. Um, and it starts at real, real bottom level. So everybody's brought up together um, in terms of their skill level. Um, and it isn't until, you know, a couple of weeks on that you actually start doing anything that really massively resembles sort of what you would probably generally class as any sort of military training. Um, a lot of it's really just ad administration, but what it's doing is just instilling in you like those, those principles of, of keeping all your kit in good order, keeping yourself in good order and just um, setting the foundation, which is exactly the name of the reason it's named that for them to go on and, and succeed at sort of the more arduous tasks. Mm. In, to go to go to your point, Mike, about sort of, you know, the danger or facing the danger um, that, that, that you do face in operations. I must be honest, it's, 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 I'm not entirely sure that we really know <laughs> exactly how that training makes that happen exactly because in training you are uh, sub subjected to sort of, you know, blank fire exercises. So you, you do face an enemy with, with, with weapons who have blank rounds and it is amazing what that can do in terms of like, you know, peaking your adrenaline and making it feel like it's real life. But effectively you do still know that you aren't actually going to get shot. But it is amazing when it actually happens for real that the, the, the skills and drills and the muscle memory just kicks in. Mm. And, and have you have you been shot at? I have had the pleasure um, <laughs> from, from 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 quite a long way away, but um, cl close enough. Yeah. Just describe just describe what that feels like when you when it first happens to you. 
it's a strange thing because I think I, I don't want to make it sound like out of Afghanistan, the, the entire thing was just, you know, just some crazy sort of war movie. It wasn't. It, 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 it ebbs and flows between actually quite a lot of doing nothing and boredom to sort of the most hair-raising adrenaline rush that you've ever had in your life. Mm. And it's that switch that is probably the most um, profound. Um, but yeah, when, when you hear the, the crack and thump of a, of a small bumblebee coming over your head, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> you soon switch on, yeah. Yeah. And, I, and as you say, what you've said uh, well there is that the training that's been ingrained in you kicks in almost subconsciously because it's so ingrained that you know what to do in that situation. Because anybody else without that training would probably go into a state of panic. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so it's just, it almost surprises yourself because you, it feels like a slightly out, out of body experience. Like you aren't actually doing it. Um, so, yeah, the, the round comes over your head and straight away you just turn towards it return fire everyone's down on their belt buckle um it's just yeah it's, it's just instant and it's just yeah it's, it's a very strange feeling because then you come back and you sort of then effectively decompress from that environment and think about it and it feels like it was happening to somebody else it's quite it's quite a strange sensation i must be honest sure it's probably 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 a state of flow almost i guess i i, I don't know but yeah. 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 From the perspective of those who are instructing and training you during what is, I think, a 32 week long course, right? Yeah, that's right. I would yeah. say their main objective is to establish that when you find yourself in that situation, you're not going to be the one who panics. <laughs> that's, and, and you can't physically deal with the stress that's about to be unleashed on you. That's absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely got one of the main sort of KPIs they're looking for. Exactly. Yeah. So they work yeah. backwards from basically the most extreme situation you can probably be placed into. I'm curious to know, in that process, you know, you're being watched by these guys and they're looking to see and they're testing you and they're saying, you know, we've seen one or two things from Richie would make us wonder. Let's put, do they say it like this? They say, let's put Richie in a particularly stressful situation and see how he copes. Or do they always treat you as one part of a whole and leave it up to obvious failures to filter people out? Um, I think for the most part, most people are treated fairly equally uh, in, in terms of the stresses and uh, things they're subjected to. But however, you can be sort of promoted to be like a section commander in training, for instance. And I think they often do that to see about your leadership skills. And that's complete. There's, there's two sides to that. One is if they see someone who has potential, they, they, they will, they'll put that person and see if they can deal with like the extra stress and um, responsibility of, 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 of commanding their, their peers. But I also think they use it to see if, you know, if we just add one more straw to this camel's back, is it going to break basically? Mm. Yeah. And just, just, yeah. Yeah. How flexible or agile is the instruction procedure? Because I think one of the dilemmas for coaches is, especially in team environments, is that some players need a soft touch. Some players need a hard bat. <laughs> uh, some players need encouragement. Others might deal with criticism. Do you have that kind of relationship with the instructor where they'll say to you, listen, you're looking good in some respects and so on? In other words, are you coached or are you, are you merely tested? And, and the, the constant procedure of testing is what, what either, either makes or breaks the, the Marine. Um, there's criteria tests that you have to pass, but to say it was just a series of tests wouldn't, 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 would, would be unfair to the, the uh, training teams at, at Limston. No, there's, it's, it's definitely coaching. So, you know, everybody's coming you know, and just just to give it a real really basic example, of the UK. It's unlikely anyone in the UK there would have ever held held a weapon and then, or, or or even fired a gun. So right there, you've got 
some people will be responders and non-responders, as you, as you would say, Ross, to sort of that 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 that, that coaching. Mm. And some people need more nurturing than others. At that point, the training team, if there's a non-responder, don't just sort of give up the ghost and say you know, you, you haven't got got what it takes to cut it. You know, those people will usually give them sort of either extra lessons, extra remedial training. There is a limit to that because obviously it is a bit of a um, a big machine in terms of you are, you are, you know, you're quite a small cog in a big machine and I haven't got limit, unlimited time. And obviously the training moves on, um, through yeah. time, but th- th- throughout training, yeah, the, uh, the training team are pretty, pretty proactive in bringing people on and sort of trying to bring everybody up to a standard because they're one, one of their main, main motivations and definitely the motivation they sort of say to us is they, they don't want to pass out people because the Royal Marines is a pretty small community and they don't want to give people a green beret who then may meet friends they know and then they'd be disappointed in the people that they've passed out. So, you know, just say, for instance, yourself, Ross was, was, was one of the PTIs there. You would have professional, you know, uh, uh, professional sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, responsibility really that the people you were passing out could do the job. Yeah. Mm, mm. Yeah. yeah. Because it's always interested me. Like you've got what is in effect a mass approach to training people. Mm-hmm. but they're individuals and, and I, th- I think for instance of injuries that would happen because if anyone ever said to me how much should I train for my first marathon to not get injured my answer always would be well that depends on the person and we don't uh, we don't apply one rule to a big group of 60 people but in the marine context they are doing that and I've always wondered how they uh, adjust on the fly when when a when a person does have a stress fracture or a muscle strain or a ligament issue do they do they help that person through or do they just say, come back next year and try again? So probably the, the answer to that is probably to explain how the, how the training works in terms of the different troops. So like I said, I, I arrived on the platform with 60 other guys. And let's just say that was n- n- uh, numbered troop 100. Two weeks later, there'll be another 60 guys on that platform. And that's troop 101. Mm. And the following two weeks later, there'll be a troop 102. If someone gets injured in troop 100 and say it's just a muscle tear, it's but it means they can't continue with the training in that troop. They then go to a holding company called Hunter, which is like a remedial sort of company where you oh. tread water in terms of recuperation. <laughs> um, and then once you're ready to rejoin training, you can then step back into a troop that was behind your original troop and then pick up where you left off effectively. So you so you can pass those tests. Yeah, that, that's mm. that's how that's that's managed. That, that, co- that covers both um, remedial training in terms of someone who isn't up to scratch to pass that test at that time. Um, but it also covers injuries as well, yeah. yeah. You touched very briefly at the start, maybe we'd get a bit more detail, when you talk about progressive training. Um, there's, there's two parts of this that I'd like to ask you about. The perception of a Marine is always what we see in the movies, the the rock, you know, Dwayne Johnson, the big bulky muscular <laughs> guy. But the, the, from what I've read, the reality is that you know, most of these guys are wiry, um, you know, wiry athletic individuals. But... First of all, talk us through the through the sort of progressive training aspect. You 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 said at the start it's 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 very progressive. The idea is to get people fitter. It's not a, su- a sudden shock thing. Um, just give us some more detail about how that works. Um, is it yeah. is it fitness versus strength? And um, what how, what component is strength? What component is fitness? Yeah, yeah, sure. So the first nine weeks, um, in terms of your fitness training, generally take part take take part in a gym. And when I say gym, I mean like an old school gym with um, rope climbs, pull-ups, press-ups, uh, and shuttle sprints, that type of thing, not uh, like a weights room or a mach- with, with, with machines. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all body weight. 
in trainers, shorts and t-shirt generally. Um, so it's all body weight and there's obviously some running there as well. But again, it's unweighted. So you don't, you're not carrying any kit and equipment and it's all done in trainers. Um, and the idea of that is obviously then to bring everybody up in terms of fitness so that they can start adding load. And I mean that both in terms of weight and also training stress. Um, from that nine weeks, you then move on to the bottom field, um, which is the assault course. And then you start doing more, more um, runs in boots. And then you start adding, they, they, they then start adding some more kit to you. So you have your, what's called webbing, which is kind of, as you've seen in kind of like most, most movies, it's kind of like sort of, um, you have the pouches on, on your hips, mm. um, which carry your, your, your ammunition and food and water, et cetera. Um, and that weight that gets added to that webbing just gradually increases. So again, there's rope climbs, there's the assault course, there's running, there's, and then there's fireman's carriage. So you're carrying other individuals carrying that kit. So slowly the weight increases and the stress increases and also the duration of those events. Um, I think what the, the difficulty is uh, in terms of the military training is that's different than sport really is. Um, you're trying to get people fit um, but also, like we said earlier, um, introduce grit or, or, or develop grit in those people. And therefore, sometimes you have to do training when you're not in your best sort of most rested state, for instance. Not not, not every time you, you arrive at the, at the assault course, you're well rested, you know, well fed, etc. So, you know, I, I, I'll be honest with you, Roman's training is basically chronic overload. I mean, it's, 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 it's overtraining and definitely um, a lack of sleep as well th throughout, really. Um, the difference obviously with sport is you you would choose to do your training hopefully you would be well rested and all, all that all, all that sort of good stuff really but, um mm. then what happens really the, the 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 exercises you go on so when i say exercises i mean field exercises so you're out like i said on dartmoor in wales where, or whatever it is the rucksack or as it's known bergen that you carry will gradually increase in weight just naturally because of the kit and equipment you're carrying so slowly you'll start using radios you'll start taking actual ammunition with you uh, more food because your exercise has become increasingly long. So before it was a two-day exercise and you needed two days of food and now you need a week's worth of food. And so slowly throughout the exercises, they increase in length and they're more arduous, but also the weight increases as well. Um, yeah. And what does a typical Marine look like? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, um, well, probably like me, but younger, <laughs> but, but, um, yeah, I, th I think you're right. Like a, a lot of guys, once they finish training that they are not muscle bound, sort of like Dwayne Johnson looking, that is not, that is not what the, what, what the training develops really. It's long endurance events and there is strength that's done at the start and during the assault course phases, but effectively you're trying to get people who are good at carrying quite a lot of weight over a lot of distance. And that's reasonably low intensity really in some ways, but, it's just very, very long durations. And obviously that doesn't develop sort of, you know, defined musculature necessarily. It just makes you really good at carrying really heavy stuff. <laughs> In fact, I'd say, though, wouldn't it be accurate that it's not not even a case that the training doesn't develop the Dwayne Johnson physique. It actually selects against it. And I, Yeah, it's just really interference with that, I would have said, yeah. So when you're yeah. in Troop 100 and it's now six weeks in and Troop 103 is arriving, do you look at the incoming recruits and say, nah, not going to make it, he looks okay, He's not going to make it. Do you, do, you, do you have bets going like that? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question, actually, Ross. That's a good question. I'm trying to think back now to like, because when I arrived, everybody's hanging out the accommodation window shouting, don't do it. Like trying to get everyone <laughs> to get back on the train, which yeah. is uh, always great. But um, yeah, I think sometimes you see people and 
yeah, that pretty, sounds pretty bad. But yeah, you are probably like, okay, that guy is probably about 65 kilos and he's about to carry a rucksack that's 55. That's going to be difficult. But um, but yeah, apart from that, it's, it's surprising. Like, 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 like we alluded to, there is a physical side to it, no doubt. But the mental the mental resilience side of it mm. is so important that it probably, whilst it doesn't override the physical side, you know, you, you need that. And obviously if you, if, if you get injured or can't do the test, then then you can't become a Royal Marine. But it's amazing what, the mental side can actually get can get can get you through because part to weight ratio i imagine is a it seems like it's a game of power to weight ratio because as you say the 65 kilogram guy might be absolutely brilliant at the endurance events without any packs on um but as he starts adding weight the older the bigger the the, the individual the stronger they'll be therefore they'll be able to carry it so i imagine as the weight gets added that the smaller individuals Maybe not smaller, maybe less strong individuals get weeded out, and yeah. the, and the and the stronger guys get weeded in. I don't, I don't know. It's it's. I mean, is, yeah, it, is it, a typical I, guy like eighty kilos and you know five foot nine? I mean, is that is that a would that be a a sort of a central pretty, point for the for for a marine to look like? Yeah, it probably is. That's pretty exactly why I was I was probably five ten, but yeah, eighty kilos sounds about right. Yeah, just yeah, pretty. Um, but I I I think you're actually right there, Mike. In terms of like you know muscle mass, et cetera, just to sort of take on that load. You you need that. And and whilst I don't know if this is the direction you want to go in, but from 2017, uh, women could be uh, allowed into the Royal Marines or, or allowed to join recruit training in the Royal Marines. Um, and for, for, for the record, I think that's a good thing. But but I, I think, as as we all be aware, obviously, as, as, as a group, they're generally lighter than men. Mm. And therefore, the percentage of weight they're carrying to their body weight makes some 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 of the exercises very difficult. Yeah. yeah. When they were not, allowed not, to join, did the, did the Marines accommodate those physical differences by, for instance, setting different targets and no. different tasks? So, so in other words, the, no. the standard is the standard. Here's the bar, and you clear it, and it doesn't matter who who or what. Yes, this is where you go. That's it. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, it has to be like that because. Battle, yeah, yeah, battle's yeah. not going to make those accommodations, right? Yeah, so. exactly. And I think it also comes down to sort of um, unit pride, for want of a better word. Um, you know, the, the ethos behind it. You know, you need to know that the person standing to your left and right has passed the same bar as you. Mm. Doesn't really matter whether they're male or female, in my opinion. But mm. you need. I think that that the tests are there for a reason. Yeah. Um, and, and we've spoken about the physical, the physiological, the the mental as well what about the and i don't know what the right word is for this but almost like the academic or the intelligence side of it do they do they teach you thinking yeah so i I think if you you know watch sort of generally their american films but it seems like it's just like a bit of a brainless exercise where you just get put for a sausage factory and shouted at a lot that that isn't really the case and there's definitely you know so there's there's much more sort of individual skills so and sort of finer skills so for instance navigation mm. um use using and setting up radios you know which sounds really basic but you know communicating on a radio correctly is really important um medical skills i think i said that already so weapon skills be that you know stripping clearing your weapon shooting all those sort of things are you know much more intelligence based and some people like you said are responders and non-responders to it um and so individual thinking like i i I think that's one of the reasons I sort of joined the joined the Royal Marines. Really, it felt like you were given more autonomy um, than possibly in other forces. Uh, again, I haven't been in those forces, so I couldn't say if that's totally true. But that definitely felt like you know often you were operating in as much smaller groups as opposed to a, a large section. You were, you were, yeah. 
Just uh, a couple of final questions from me. Uh, I, I'm interested to know, do you know what sort of, when you do those seven-day treks and through the Dartmoor, do you know your calories that you're consuming? I mean, you, you talked about carrying that stuff with you. How do yeah. you eat and what, what's your intake in those situations? Yeah, so so if, you, if you're on exercise or on any operation that's away from a main patrol base, you'll, you'll be on a ration pack effectively. So it, it comes in a box, it's numbered, and it, We'll have a menu, <laughs> so the, um, and you'll have a breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and some sort of um, like en- like energy powders and stuff like that type of thing, um, and tea and coffee making sort of sachets. Um, I think generally they have around about four thousand calories in those in in in, in each box, but I, I'm pretty sure on arduous exercises you're burning way above that. Bear in mind you're outside in the winter, so just that alone you must consume or burn a lot of calories just to stay stay warm, plus wow. carrying your kit. And I think by the end of the exercise, I mean, those ration packs are, are often for sure exercises, I would save like the rice packs and then bring them on the harder exercises. So you can like bulk up your meals with rice, even though, you know, sausage, egg and rice doesn't sound that appealing, <laughs> but it's just, it's just about getting calories on board really. Yeah. How does that compare to a, sort of a Tour de France riders well, intake, Russ? <laughs> no, I'd say average in, the, average in the tour is f- between four and five. Yeah, super tough. Yeah. Six hour mountain day, six to seven. I think the the, the record is about eleven thousand a polar explorer, and that's as Richie says because in part the cold, and in part the fact that you're active for not five or six hours, but maybe twenty one hours in that day. Because and even if it's low intensity, the cold is in itself energy demanding. But then you're trekking a sled up a slope. That was the record that I've seen. It was uh, published. By, yeah, I mean that's. What's That's Mike Stroud was the Polar Explorer, and they, they documented that. And what sort of stuff is in that pack? I mean, you talked about there being energy powders, but what? And you talked about rice and coffee. And what are, what are, what other stuff is in that pack? Um, so they all come in sort of boil in a bag packets, um, and and to be heated in your jet boil that you've got. So just a small camping stove type thing. Mm. Um, and generally, you know, it can be anything from like sausage and beans as a breakfast, mushroom stroganoff. It all sounds great, but it's not brilliant if I'm honest with you. It's <laughs> um, quite a lot of pasta dishes and stuff, but there's there's a reasonably like diverse menu and some of the bits you want to avoid. Actually, I said mushroom stroganoff and that's a no-go. Just if, if, if anyone's listening thinking about joining the Royal Marines, just avoid that menu like the plague. But um, yeah, and mushroom pate and stuff, but they're all really calorie dense sort of uh, meals. Not all of them are terrible in, in truth, but I mean, you wouldn't choose to eat it. Uh, and it, too, really, yeah. The interesting thing is that we talk about multi-day events in, in sport and even people that do long sport events where they get sick and tired of eating the sweet stuff. But the reason why I ask that question is that obviously you're, you're eating whole foods over those seven days. So it's not energy drinks and that sort of thing. It's whole foods. Yeah, it's whole food. Yeah, so yeah, that's a good point, Mike. Yeah, it isn't just – yeah, you're not just doing sort of cliff bars and and, mm. and energy powders. Yeah, there's, there's whole foods in there. Mm. Um, and I think – I think yeah. After a certain duration, that would just become untenable in terms of just eating energy foods. You just yeah, really, really, really struggle to keep going on that. I think motivation as well to actually eat it would just completely wane. Yeah. When you finish an exercise like that, you've spoken a couple of times about that seven-day uh, Dartmoor thing. Do they have a medical assessment of all the trainees at that point, and is there other medical support provided on the on the way? So, general exercise, you will have 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 a medic um as part of the training or, or sorry one of the one of the training team or most of the training team have got some sort of medical sort of um tr- training and dartmoor as, as an area is sort of is quite well used by the uk military so it's it's you know it, the um 
medical team are quite quite well aware of it. Um, in terms of when you return from exercise, um, I think you're asked if you have any any problems or issues, but I think you're really promoted to self-declare those, which probably isn't a great system because I think people often probably hide niggles and injuries longer than they mm. probably would in civilian life just because you really don't want to get, like I said, back trooped into one of those troops or go go, uh, go go into hunter company to sort of not continue training. Um, and at Limpson, there's a medical unit or bay that's pretty, pretty well serviced and quite, quite well attended usually throughout training by, mm. by people. I mean, injuries are fairly, fairly regular, I think in, in, mm. in, in training stress fractures, as you mentioned earlier, are probably one of the main, main serious injuries that, that occur. Then sort of semi-related, do they have, do they, do they teach you psychology in the training process or do they have, take the approach that actually the training is the psychology and it's in a, it's taught almost in a functional way or do they actually put you in front of someone who teaches you about uh, resilience and grit and motivation? I feel like it's part of the training more than it's taught um, separately or explicitly. I think it's just a byproduct of the training. If mm. I'm honest with you. Yeah. That, that, that feels that, that, that feels like it chimes with my experience of going through training. Mm. Um, no doubt there's sort of, you know, tips and tricks to to, to 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 motivate you you know and it doesn't really matter what those are some of them are just motivational quotes you know on your in your bed space where you sleep at night type thing you know or, or pictures or you know that, that that type of thing but yeah for me really from, from the best of my memory it was more just it it, it, it was a byproduct of the training mm. yeah and then and then just and as mike said we'll wrap up soon i've got a few questions actually i hope engaging ones the the one the one thing i would like for you to explain is how do you then at the end of all of this 32 weeks in how do you then go about earning that that green beret? Yeah, so throughout those criteria tests that you have to pass, as I said, but really the whole the whole training period of the nine months, thirty two weeks, culminates in what are known as the commando tests, and there's four of those, uh, and they take place over five days. Um, so there's there's one rest day effectively in there, um, and the purpose of those is really just to really the last the the last sort of um, last challenge, really just to prove you've got the the physical and mental capability to earn that green beret and they and did, did, did you want me to go through what they are Is yeah yeah maybe? explain maybe briefly yeah, exactly just, yeah. what the, just, just what in, the tests are because yeah. there'll be people listening to this who think i could do that maybe <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i think what's what's before i go before i explain the tests is it important to say is that probably individually the tests are actually quite passable by someone who's pretty fit yeah they aren't they aren't impossible by by any means i think what makes them very very difficult is the fact that you arrive having done eight and a half months of pretty arduous training and you are definitely not, you know, well rested, you know, um, and in the best, you're, you're, you're in good shape, but physically you are very fatigued. You've got a high level of fatigue. Um, so the tests are what is known as the endurance course. Um, and that consists of, um, there's basically a two mile series of tunnels, uh, on Woodbury common, um, which go through water dips, um, that type of thing. You run that, in with with your weighted webbing and, and rifle uh, and then there's an, then there's a four mile run back to camp which then culminates in a 10 round um sort of target shoot the reason for the target shoot which is not particularly difficult to pass but is to ensure that when you're doing that test and going through these water tunnels and through all the mud that you're looking after your weapon and rifle because in fact it's, it's to replicate sort of getting to battle and keeping your kit and equipment in good good working order because there's no point arriving if your rifle malfunctions when you get there mm. so it's just um that's usually around i think the past time is 72 minutes on that but most people do it with just 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 over an hour but it's a pretty pretty good workout that one um 
the easiest one would be probably the nine mile speed march a speed march is how the royal marines get a body of men or women um from point a to point b as a unit so we all run together um we usually run the flats and downhills and you walk the uphills uh, and you'll walk in step as a sort of uh, three abreast um and that's run up uh, has to be completed in 90 minutes so it's 10 minute miles which bad maths but it's probably what's that six minute 10 kilometers yeah just outside like that. six it, minutes okay yeah sure yeah which is not particularly arduous in terms of pace but again you're carrying your kit and equipment mm. um and the and it's run as a negative uh, positive split sorry so the first couple of miles are absolutely flat out at which point you think i'm never gonna be able to finish this but they're trying to get time in the bank um for the for the latter part of the course um anyway um the third test is then is the tarzan assault course which is a high wires high wires course uh which starts with a th- with what's known as the death slide where you chuck yourself out of a 40 foot tower down a zip line with, a, with with no harness just a, a rope strop around your arms um and then you uh go around a series of sort of high wire obstacles a bit like you would see it sort of like a thing like go ape or something like that i don't know if you guys have that uh, mm. sort of thing but it's like <laughs> that but without a harness again um and then it finishes with an assault course and then you have to climb a 30 foot wall uh, at the end uh, i think the time limit for that is 13 minutes and it's pretty short but it's just eyes bleeding from the from the minute you, your feet touch the ground already for 12 13 minutes mm. um and then for me and most people, the hardest test to pass uh, or the most arduous is what's known as the 30 miler. Um, and that is, as, as you would expect, a 30 mile run across Dartmoor carrying your kit and equipment, at which point at the end of that, if you pass your reward, your Green Beret. But that is a, a pretty arduous, arduous event. I found that incredibly difficult and was in a world of pain by the end of that, I can tell you. I, I don't know if it's known as cardiac drift, Ross, but whatever it is the where... You're going the same speed, but the level effort you're putting out is just so much higher than at the beginning. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's almost um, um, unbelievable. Yeah, I was basically felt like I was fully sprinting just to keep basically walking. And that's you've got eight hours, right, to do thirty miles? Eight is that hours. Right? Yeah, eight hours. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, which again, you know, it's a bit longer than a marathon, so it doesn't sound that difficult, but the terrain is unforgiving at best. Yeah. Mm. And then, okay, last three questions. I'll be trying to be quick. You That's mentioned fun. earlier that you'd done some training with the U.S. What What's the main difference between how they train in the U.S. and what you did, if any? Yeah, there's quite a bit of difference between the U.S. Marines and, 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 and the Royal Marines. I think that's a question a lot of people ask. I, I haven't been for U.S. Marine training, and I, and I don't wish to sort of say anything bad about them. I, I would say the Royal Marines are not really comparable to the U.S. Marines, apart from in name. Um, they are their own sort of fighting unit, and they're, 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 they're a massive you know, the US has also got a huge army. Um and, and, and the Marines is one part of that. Um I think having fought with them, they're just really good men, but I think we would be more comparable to sort of a slightly more elite unit uh how uh that the the the, the, the uh, US has. So something like uh, Delta or mm. the uh stills probably I would say. Yeah, the Rangers or something. Is that the Delta? Yeah, possibly something like that. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm not entirely sure of their like the, the training protocol they go through. Um from what I do know a little bit about it, I think it's a lot more. It's, it's, you get a lot less autonomy or, or a lot less uh, freedom to sort of make your own decisions. That that would be how I would sort of probably. But I'm probably speaking about something I don't have a in-depth knowledge of. If, if I'm honest with Fair. you. Okay. Question two. Uh, you've obviously had the benefit of almost a decade out, plus wisdom and maturity and so on. But thinking back now, what's the most surprising thing that you you'd learned from it? Where 
you took expectation in when you stepped off that train and the, the one thing that really shook you and said, wow, that I didn't expect? Um, I think it's, it's a slightly soft skill, if I'm honest with you, to probably describe that. It's probably not, it's not physical. It's, it's um, how the, it, and it actually happened more when I passed training. So once I passed training, um, I went on a three month deployment around the Middle East, the Mediterranean on ship. And we dealt at various places and trained indigenous and local forces. But during that, you know, there's, you spend sort of two weeks or more at sea sailing between the, the different places. Um, and we're all, you're all in a very small sort of mess deck with three tier bunks. And I just remember being in a room with probably like 20 other lads, you know, there's no room, everyone's on top of each other. And I don't remember there being one crossword between anybody and everyone was just knew that everybody was doing their best, doing their job. You know, it, and I just compare that to maybe how that would happen in civilian life. And there's, I think everyone would be at each other's throats in about 20 minutes. Uh, mm. I think that was the sort of, I don't know, just a thing I look back on and always surprised, which is yeah, may, maybe not what you're after, Ross, but that's that's the kind of like thing that I take away from it, yeah. No, that's that's great. That's exactly what I was after. And then last one, what's the one thing when you watch any Hollywood movie about the military that pisses you off the most as inaccurately portraying what you know to be true? <laughs> Um, yeah, let's just go for There's probably a bit of a list of that. So all the weapons weapons they have seem to have unlimited ammunition. Um, I think there's (laughs) about three films. We've ever seen anyone actually reload a, reload a weapon. Um, what's quite funny as well is when you're actually carrying the amount of kit you are, you feel like it's a bit like when you watch GoPro footage of when you're mountain biking, it's always unimpressive. And it's the same when you're running with kit, you think you're moving at like light speed and you watch, if you, if you ever see it back, I mean, honestly, it's just. It, it looks horrendous because you're just going so slow. But obviously in movies, everyone's doing, you know, 100 meter sprints in like 10 seconds, carrying all their ammunition and mm. stuff. And it's just so unrealistic because it is wearing body armor, carrying all your ammunition, medical pack, food, rifle. I mean, that slows you down some. Yeah. Yeah. It's just. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Richard, thanks very much for your time. It's been an absolutely fascinating. And I think you, you you create an amazing link between your your experience of the military and, and your experience as a cyclist. And, and it's lovely to hear those those uh, comparisons. I, I don't think I would ever want to join the army. I certainly don't have the grit that uh, you talk about in that. I don't think I ever will have that sort of grit. But there, there are certain lessons that we can take from this that I think are very valuable. So thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. There's just one thing, sorry, I should probably yeah. uh, correct just because I know there'll be, if there's anyone else who's a Royal Marine listening to it, that the Royal Marine are part of the Royal Navy and not the Army. But that's the right. only thing I should probably, uh, yeah. That's <laughs> sorry, good I just know if I didn't say that, someone would be uh, on Twitter probably no, all over it. So I'll just uh, nip that one in the bud. But uh, yeah, thanks, guys. It was a pleasure. Great. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Thanks, eh? Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hmm. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.